When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of delicious prose from this week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and on our menu this week, why subnational currencies flounder, Europe's toll crisis, and China's Shakespeare is thrust into the limelight. But first, Now We're Talking was our cover line this week. With voice technology improving at an increasing pace, we're leaping into a new era of human-computer interaction. It offers new opportunities and challenges, as our cover leader explored. Any sufficiently advanced technology, noted Arthur C. Clarke, a British science fiction writer, is indistinguishable from magic. Conversational computing is no exception. Using it is just like casting a spell. Say a few words into the air and a nearby device can grant your wish. And abracadabra, this trick is proving popular. Apple's Siri handles over 2 billion commands a week and 20% of Google searches on Android-powered handsets in America are input by voice. Dictating emails and text messages now works reliably enough to be useful. Why type when you can talk? As such, the need for user interface is melting away. This is a huge shift. Just as mobile phones were more than existing phones without wires, and cars were more than carriages without horses, so computers without screens and keyboards have the potential to be more useful, powerful and ubiquitous than people can imagine today. A lot more than just voice-controlled kettles, then. But in order for this new relationship to flourish, hurdles will need to be jumped. To reach its full potential, the technology requires further breakthroughs and a resolution of the tricky questions it raises around the trade-off between convenience and privacy. You can read the rest of our analysis in this week's issue, along with our technology quarterly section dedicated to the era of voice computing. Perhaps even artificially intelligent playwrights are on the horizon, but our China section explored a couple humanity has produced. Last year, 400 years after his death, Shakespeare was celebrated all over the world, and China was no exception. But in this country, an ulterior motive was afoot. There were plays, lectures, and even plans announced for the rebuilding of his hometown, Stratford-upon-Avon, at San Wong-upon-Min, in Jiangxi province. But Shakespeare, it seems, was simply a convenient excuse to discuss another linguist closer to home. Their main aim was to use the English bard to promote one of their own, Tung Xian Tzu, 
Whatever the West can do, their message was, China can do at least as well. I suppose star-crossed poets have some star-crossed similarities. Tang died in 1616, the same year as Shashibia, as Shakespeare is called in Chinese. President Xi Jinping described Tang as the Shakespeare of the East during a state visit to Britain in 2015. It seems unlikely that the two playwrights would have met as Sino-European contacts were pretty rare at the time. But that has not deterred China's cultural commissars from trying to weave a common narrative. Or indeed making much ado about nothing. A Chinese opera company created Coriolanus and Du Li Nyung, in which Shakespeare's Roman general encounters an aristocratic lady from Tung's best-known play, The Peony Pavilion. Well, as you like it, as one of them will certainly have said. So with China jumping on the barred bandwagon and pointing it eastwards, we head off to our Europe section, where a tiff over toll roads has morphed from a petty squabble into a fully-blown diplomatic crisis. Every winter, northern Europeans bound for ski holidays zip insouciantly through the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany on motorways that are free of charge. But near the borders of Austria or Switzerland, they must pull over to buy stickers so that they can drive on the Alpine motorways, even as Austrian and Swiss cars zoom in the opposite direction onto Germany's free autobahn. Many motorists were miffed, in particular the bordering Bavarians. In 2013, the CSU, a regional party that governs Bavaria, made fixing this unfair situation a condition for joining the coalition of the Chancellor, Angela Merkel. The Transport Minister tabled two new laws to solve the problem. In one, everyone, German or foreign, would be charged a new road toll, like Austria's. In the other, Germans would get a cut in their vehicle tax that miraculously equals the price of the new toll. After a little tweaking, the EU Commission has agreed, but now those on the other side of the border are up in arms and tensions have snowballed. Austria and the Netherlands, possibly joined by Denmark and Belgium, may sue Germany before the European Court of Justice. A Bavarian pet peeve has thus escalated to crisis diplomacy. It seems that the EU will always find new ways to puncture its own tyres. Steering neatly away from Europe's latest crisis, we head to America, where a major car manufacturer has swerved off its original plan after some trickle-down persuasion. As an article in our business section explained, Donald Trump's corporate muscles are pushing and shoving, and that's before he's even in office. It was in the spring of 2016 that Donald Trump singled out Ford Motors, calling its plans to build a plant in Mexico an absolute disgrace and promising it would not happen on his watch. In those carefree days, few would have presumed Mr Trump's words would eventually hold so much sway, but... On January 3rd, Ford cancelled its $1.6 billion project in the Mexican state of San Luis Potosí and said it would instead invest $700 million into an existing plant in Flat Rock, Michigan to build electric and autonomous cars. Quite the coincidence, but the move, we argued, is more wheel-spin than U-turn. Mr Trump's strong arming of corporate America is real enough, and the carmaker will have gained much favour with the president-elect. But its decision can be explained largely in operational terms. Nonetheless, other companies are feeling the pressure too. Next in the line of fire is General Motors, America's biggest carmaker, which said in 2013 that it would invest $5 billion in Mexico over six years. 
This week, Mr Trump admonished it for making its Chevy Cruze, another compact car, mostly over the border. Make in USA or pay big border tax, he tweeted. Well, words in short or long form can have profound effects on business. But in this week's Science and Technology podcast, we explored the influence technology has on the evolution of language itself. As our language columnist Lane Green explained. What I think is happening with new words is that the cycle of growth and decay has sped up quite a lot. If you think about Twitter, nobody decides what the official hashtag for a phenomenon is going to be. But once one catches on, it spreads through Twitter incredibly quickly and it pretty much kills off all of the other competing hashtags. And once the hashtag becomes quasi-official, even though no one has ever chosen it officially, it has spread faster than any word could have spread before this kind of technology. And Babbage, always on the case of progress, is available to download each Wednesday. While network effects may help new words develop, in our finance section, we explored a concept where even strong local connections don't always seem to come to assistance. Subnational currencies are a commendable idea, but in some ways they're the architects of their own demise, as our article explained. Tucked away in a corner of Brixton in South London, a rainbow-coloured ATM dispenses cash, looking for all the world like any other. But the notes it spews out are not pounds sterling. They are Brixton pounds. It's one of several schemes launched in towns and cities around the world, aiming to boost local economies by keeping cash close. Because the currency is worthless outside its defined geographic area, holders spend it in the neighbourhood, thus creating a local multiplier effect. The idea is popular, but people aren't so keen to put their money into it. Of over 80 launched in America since 1991, only a handful survive. Local currency schemes suffer from a trust deficit. They are not backed by the central bank, so holders do not want to risk having too much. As a result, there's never too much in circulation. Just 100,000 Brixton pounds, or 123,000 US dollars, circulates, for example, in an area of 300,000 people. That is too little to have much of an economic impact one way or another. The odd-looking notes, however, do make good souvenirs. Our obituary this week paid respects to a copper-bottomed astronomical star who overcame adversity of her own to reach success. Vera Rubin fought through the darker days of gender bias in the scientific world to establish the existence of dark matter. When, in 1965, Vera Rubin arrived for a four-day stint at the Monastery, as the Palomar Observatory, home of the world's largest telescope, was dubbed, there were no women's lavatories. No female astronomer had ever worked there before. How could they, when it would mean walking home late at night? She was struck by a similar situation at her high school. George Gamow, later her doctoral adviser, said she could not attend his lecture at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab because wives were not allowed. Well, she was a wife, but she became a revered astronomer too. Spiral galaxies such as Andromeda, she proved, were spinning so fast that their outer stars should be flying away into the never-never. They weren't. So either Einstein was wrong about gravity, or gravitational pull from vast amounts of something invisible dark matter, was holding the stars together. The discovery reshaped cosmology, 
We hope you've enjoyed our first stellar tasting menu of the year, starring me, Anne McElvoy. And don't forget you can read all of our articles in this week's issue or on our website. And do keep sending us your feedback, either via email to radio at economist.com or by reviewing our podcasts and rating them. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>